Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Once again, we have this theme of light. It is very difficult, said a historian of the Middle Ages, for modern people to understand what the world was like when it went dark with the setting of the sun. We are so used to lights everywhere, even in small villages. Neon lights and street lights and lights at the firehouse and lights from headlamps and all the rest of it. And we fly across the country at night and we look down and we see these incredible oceans of light all over the continent, here and in Europe and everywhere. So we have brought artificial light to the darkness. But without that light, the world went dark with the setting of the sun. And so everyone was very used to the phenomenon of living and moving in restricted ways through utter darkness. No uh, lanterns to speak of. Candles blew out. So you stayed in. Darkness shut you up shut you in. There was the reflected light of flickering flames if you were lucky enough to have them in your home. Otherwise, you had only the heat of the animals that lived with you and the heat of other members of the extended family. It's a world that we can scarcely comprehend and we have to work rather hard to get back into it, even mentally. That certainly was the world of the Middle East at the time of the Savior. So when he speaks of light and darkness, one of the great themes, and perhaps even the greatest theme of all in the Gospel of St. John, the beloved disciple, men knew, they felt intuitively exactly what was meant. We're told today that we are not benefited by having electric lights at night that there is a natural circadian rhythm, a rhythm of light and darkness, which is built into the very psychology and even the physiology of the human person. And that by artificially extending on a regular basis the light through uh, electricity well into the wee hours, as many do, that we are doing grave injury to ourselves as persons. Whatever that may be, one thing is certain, and that is Christ is the light of the world. And that other than Christ, there is darkness. And we live as if we were able to negotiate a kind of gray area in between Christ and absolute ugly evil. A gray area that we can inhabit at least mentally, through fantasies and daydreams and so on and so forth. The ancient Christians would have none of this. Christians of any age, the saints of our own time, understand that that is one of the great successes of Satan. To make us think that there is Christ and there is absolute evil, but also there is this other area, which is a kind of neutral zone in which we can kick back and relax and unwind. Neither neither worshipping the one or the other. 
The absolute and imperative claims of Christianity, however, are best summed up in the terms light and darkness. This day of thanksgiving is, of course, a holiday that was established by grateful and hungry pilgrims who made their peace with the local American Indians and were able to feast it well into the fall, long after the normal their normal harvest had been gathered in. The Indians was, were able to present them with the possibility of a great feast. They were ingesting calories and protein and wonderful things. Otherwise, they were in pretty bad shape. It's an odd feast, looked at with the cold eye of reality. The relationships between the Calvinists who came escaping Anglicanism in England to these shores in order to set up not freedom, but freedom for themselves and themselves alone. In fact, uh, even Baptists were exiled to that horrible place immediately to the south known as Rhode Island. Um, they, they had terrible relations with the American Indians. They were killing them regularly. And as we know, they would go out and come back in from these slaughters chanting hymns, singing hymns that uh, were based on the Psalms. They saw themselves as the new Israel in the midst of the Canaanites, seizing the promised land, wresting it in a violent and bloody way from its uh, indigenous inhabitants. So the whole picture is, uh, is not very pretty. And yet, it was a feast from the 17th century on. And a feast often depicts to a people not what they are, but what they would be. I remember a Russian elder on the Holy Mountain said this word, this phrase, Syataya Rus, Holy Russia, is resented in the West because they think it's a value judgment. It isn't a value judgment. The most uh, devout Russians are the ones who are most aware of just how unholy Russia is capable of being. It was not a value judgment, but a statement of a vocation. So the Feast of the Thanksgiving was uh, not so much a depiction of things as they were, but as they ought to be. Not a value judgment, but a statement of a vocation. Why did it fail? I think, speaking as a former Calvinist, that it failed simply because Calvinism itself had cut itself off from the deep roots which would have made of feasts on this earth, true feasts, true reflections of the great feast of the Lord's presence in the Holy Mysteries, mysteries which they scoffed at. The term hocus-pocus, which we uh, know as uh, a bunch of nonsense, uh, is, is the Calvinist take on the Latin mass, hoc est corpus me, this is my body, this is my blood. And it was a put-down of the authentic feast, the feast of feasts, the feast of the Lord's body and blood. They would have none of that. American culture is the first major human culture to not have its own liturgy. It is the first truly secular culture. 
And the language, American English, that we speak reflects this, as all languages do. Of course, we didn't invent any of this. The French had brought it to a fine perfection, what, 30 years before George Washington and his friends launched the rebellion against the crown. But the French secularization of their own culture, their own civilization, their own language, left intact that uh, Catholic base that was orthodox in its early centuries. And even today, although France is such a stridently and, and uh, vehemently and assertively secular uh, land, uh, the fact is that if you want to be a Christian in France, you can be going back to roots which are infinitely deeper than the roots of the philosophes of Voltaire and Rousseau and the rest of them. That is not the case in this country, where very quickly uh, even the Calvinist reduction and distortion of the Christian gospel was uh, something from which Americans liberated themselves. It would not be very many generations in which the settling of the Wild West was undertaken largely by men and women who had already become deeply secularized. In the midst of the 19th century, Americans had to be recalled by people like Abraham Lincoln to a more fervent faith after already the waning and cooling of the warmth of the Christian gospel, the waning of the light that Christ is. And of course it didn't last. Within half a generation after the Civil War, America was again a stridently secularized and secularizing land. It is the Orthodox who are the Johnnies-come-latelys to the North American continent who have not only the possibility, but I would say the responsibility to at long last endow this national holiday, this national feast, with its authentic significance. For all thanksgiving brings us before the liturgy, which is the Eucharist, that is to say the thanksgiving, which is the only appropriate human response for God's gift of himself to us in all of the holy mysteries and preeminently in the mystery of communion. It is we who will give thanks in a few moments, rendering thanks for all that Christ is for us. Our thanks may be enriched and overflowing and abundant, or it may be rather impoverished by a an inadequate response to demonic warfare. Whatever it is, it is still the thanksgiving of the Lord. And we will move naturally from this thanksgiving to the thanksgiving of the trapeza. I remember when I was first Orthodox visiting a Russian home where a, a babushka, a grandmother, was taking care of a toddler and uh, a grandchild. And the grandchild took a piece of bread and threw it. The babushka, the yaya, picked up the bread and kissed it, and then slapped the toddler's hand to his great indignation, accompanied by howls. And then 
Babushka gave the incomprehending toddler a stern lecture about bread. All bread is sacred. All bread reminds us of the bread, the Lamb, that is transformed by the action of the Holy Spirit into the body of our Savior. Of course, the toddler could not have passed even a very simple quiz following this presentation and the slap on uh, discerning the body of the Lord in Holy Communion. But he did take away from that experience, and I doubt not many other similar ones, uh, at least the conviction that all this was terribly serious and that sooner or later he was going to have to make up his mind to also be serious about it. May God grant that you and I will lead lives of thanksgiving even in moments of irritation and impatience, even when moved by the devil to actual anger. And may all of our hungers find their fulfillment in the Eucharist. One of the reasons that Christians always fast for this Eucharistic encounter with the risen Lord is that we want to feel the hunger in our flesh, in our bodies, in our stomachs. We want to attach that feeling of hunger, even very intense hunger, numbing hunger, to the Lord. For while we hunger for earthly food, the eating of which will prolong our sense of comfortableness and energy for a few hours and then need replenishing, the food that the Lord is and gives to us is forever. The life that we encounter in every Eucharistic participation is exactly the life from beyond the confines of this and unsuspected universes. It is the life that the Father hath in himself, and that he hath given unto the Son to have in himself, which the Son bestows upon us, sinful though we be. It was these great and non-negotiable truths of Catholic Christianity that the earliest settlers of the United States from Europe could not understand. They had rejected them in a context of bloody violence throughout the Reformation. And their strident assertion of a new gospel, as we see around us, has ultimately failed. The rest is up to us, called to be the salt of the earth and the leaven that leavens the whole lump. And so we hear when the Gospel says, Let your light so shine before men. Light illuminates. It is also usually silent. So our witness is of a particular kind, especially we who are monks. May God grant us to know how this light shines through us and how we must bear it to a darkened world. Amen.